Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, there is a Bible in the pew back in front of you. Feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that. You can have it. It's our gift to you. And when I say you don't have a Bible, I don't mean it's in the backseat of my car and I don't feel like climbing back there and getting it. I mean, I really don't have one. Take it with you. It's fine. It's our gift to you. Um, And I didn't run that by anybody before I said that. So it's just, you can blame me when you take it, when somebody tries to catch you going out the door. (laughs) He said I could. Um, Now, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, There is a blessing that we have that we sometimes potentially take for granted and maybe overlook by just being in this country, and it's the blessing of being innocent until proven guilty. We overlook this a lot of times. We don't really think about it a lot lot of times, Um, but it is something to be profoundly grateful for, and it's historically very rare. In fact, even in court systems, around the world, of places that you and I wouldn't mind living. This is not the rule of law that you're innocent until proven guilty. It's a, it's a historical anomaly that that would be the basis of our, of our justice system in America. You're innocent until proven guilty. Imagine just for a, a second that you are on trial for your life and you happen to know I did not commit this crime that they are alleging I have committed. Imagine as you're sitting there through the trial that goes on for weeks and the evidence is presented both by the defense and the prosecution, the prosecution that you are guilty, the defense that you are innocent, the the evidence is presented, the evidence is then weighed by a jury of your peers. They're in a room and they're deliberating over a countless amount of time. Uh, over whether you are guilty or innocent. And then they come to the courtroom. Everyone is gathered there. People on all sides gathered there in the courtroom. And the foreman reads the verdict, not guilty. Imagine the rush that would come over you in that moment. You all this time have known you're not guilty. But now it is officially declared that you are not guilty by a jury of your peers. Jesus in our passage this morning is preparing the disciples for a day to come when they will or may have to lead the church body to declare a verdict on a case of an unrepentant brother. We're going to read about that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Let's So look there in our Bibles. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray for our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we have read your word, that you would help it make sense to us. Help it set on our hearts that we may be changed, be different, having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jesus, in, our, in the context of our, our passage this morning, Jesus has been responding to a question that goes all the way back to the very beginning of chapter 18, back in verse 1, where the disciples actually pose a question to him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this question that they asked to Jesus, uh, he doesn't take lightly, and I don't think he really liked it, to be honest with you. Um, I just get that reading from the text, or get that sense from the text, but because it exposes a failure of understanding on the disciples' part what the kingdom of God actually looks like. It just exposes their ignorance. And so Jesus takes this opportunity as they've asked the question to explain to them a little bit more what the community of his followers actually looks like. What the the church is actually going to function like. And first he says that they have to become like children. He he brings a child in front of them and uses that child as an example. And he says, you have to become like children. And I explain that as as they have to understand that they have no status in the kingdom of heaven. They They have no status at all. They have no claim to the throne of Christ. It's only by Him that they have a status in in heaven. It's only because of His blood. They have to become like children, meaning they have to become humble like children. And then second, He says that they have to receive little ones like this. They need to receive disciples of Jesus. People who have humbled themselves and have claimed Christ as their only status. They need to receive them, and receiving those little ones is like receiving Jesus Himself. And then third, you can't let them wander off. These little ones who are around you, to let them wander off into sin is to despise these His followers. And you must not do that. So rather than be concerned with how great you are and who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you instead need to be concerned about who is the least in the kingdom of heaven. And when you're concerned with who is the least, then you don't let anyone wander outside of the pen and allow them to be tackled by the wolves, so to speak. So rather than being concerned with their own position in the kingdom, they need to be concerned with all the other citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So last week we saw that the bar for despising, what Jesus calls despising one of these little ones, God's sheep, the bar for that is really low. You don't have to do much to be considered despising one of these little ones. And the bar for care in God's family is really high. What you have to do to actually care for God's sheep is really high. The bar for despising is really low. It's as low as just simply not knowing what your brother or sister, what kind of sins are they're struggling with. It's that low. It's as low as, as not caring if they wander off into sin or why they happen to be absent for a prolonged period of time. Jesus is putting all of these would-be citizens of the kingdom of heaven on notice. Every single one of you 
are responsible for your brothers and sisters. Every single one of you are responsible for helping the person next to you strive toward holiness. And it turns out that striving towards holiness is the name of the game. That's the reason we're all together. And if we don't care enough about the person sitting next to us to actually help them strive to holiness, we're not a church. We might be a whole lot of other things, but we're not a church. Because all we do then would be despising God's actual sheep. And that makes our text this morning particularly interesting, I think. There are times, or so it would appear, where exclusion from the church community becomes necessary. We're actually removing someone from the church community is necessary. And so you might be inclined to think, after what we went through last week, where we saw that, hey, it doesn't take much to despise one of God's sheep. I talked with some of you after the sermon and, and in uh, the last few days where you've said that that was really hard. That's heavy. That's a big burden. I don't want to despise anyone. I don't want Jesus to accuse me of despising one of my brothers. It's just the last thing that I want to do. And so you might be inclined to think after reading the passage that precedes this one, well, if the bar for despising one of these little ones is that low, well, then let's just err on the side of caution. Let's just include everyone. Let's just bring everyone in. Let's just never talk about anyone else's sins because the last thing I want to be accused of is despising someone. So let's just err on the side of caution. Well, it turns out Jesus is going to depict that as jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Turns out there's a tightrope that we're walking as a church where we have a responsibility on both sides, where we need to confront someone in sin if necessary and also exclude them from membership if necessary. Church discipline is not one of the more glamorous topics I realize to preach about. And I've done it now twice in the last, I don't know, five weeks or so. And so it's definitely not comfortable because we have to talk about other people's sins and actually dealing with other people's sins. However, along with preaching, teaching, singing, praying, church discipline is also one of those things that Jesus puts up there as something that is necessary to do in a church. It's a mandatory aspect of our life together as, a, as the body of Christ. And there's two aspects in this passage that I want you to see in order to grasp our responsibilities as a church body as it pertains to membership. The first is this. The church forgives the repentant and condemns the unrepentant sinner. The church forgives the repentant sinner and condemns the unrepentant sinner. Look at verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus is outlining 
for the disciples what happens in the event that you have this wandering sheep who has delved off into sin against another brother or perhaps sister in the congregation, how is it that you are to exhibit care for this so-called brother or sister? Now, I want you to see a couple of things that Jesus puts before us. The first is that the goal is repentance. The goal is repentance. That's clearly what he puts out there. So in this scenario, this fellow little one, this person who's, who's calling themselves a member of the body, who is, who is saying that they are a Christian, um, this disciple of Jesus, he sins against another disciple of Jesus. And there is a responsibility, Jesus says, for the one that has been sinned against to go to the brother or sister and tell him or her the sin that he or she has committed. Now, what needs to be underscored here is that this is the first step in church discipline. Churches, some may say, well, we don't practice church discipline. Or some may say, we do practice church discipline. And the immediate thought is about excommunication, kicking someone out of the church. But what Jesus is putting before us here is that this is actually the first step of church discipline. When you would go and just confront someone who has sinned against you in sin. Most people assume that church discipline is equals excommunication. It actually doesn't. Church discipline is very simply the process of correcting sin in the church body. That's it. Correcting sin in the church body. So a wife who's a member of a church goes to her husband who's a member of the same church and says, you've sinned against me. That's the first step of church discipline as it would be with any other member of the body going to somebody else. It begins with one, or one brother or another going to someone and telling them that they have committed sin. But notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And I think this is really important for us to pause and just understand and think about what Jesus is saying here. First of all, let's ask the question, what does it mean for him to listen to you? If this person has listened to you, how do you know if this person has listened? In Luke 17, 3, Jesus says this, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So this passage in Luke comes from a very similar thing that Jesus is saying in Matthew, but Luke makes it much shorter and much more concise and much more to the point. The point is, if you're, for your brother to listen to you means that he admits his mistake He repents, he turns, he confesses, he changes his course of action, and your relationship is restored. He repents. But the reason that I think that this is tremendously important for us to think about for just a second is Jesus is about to go on to say in Matthew what happens if he refuses to listen. What happens if he refuses to listen? The result is... You've lost the person that was called your brother. That's that's the end of this passage. The result is you've lost him. The person who you thought you were kindred souls, that you were going to be in heaven, you were going to be in eternity with together forever, it's gone. He's wandered off into sin. He refuses to repent and he's gone. You've lost him forever. 
He's not talking about just merely a fractured relationship. You've lost your brother. Your relationship is no longer the same. That's not merely what he's saying here. Losing your brother is losing his soul. His soul, in other words, is dangling over the pit of hell. That's the situation that you two are in right now. The reason is because what he has done to you is not merely an infraction in the relationship. The sin that he has committed is not merely just an infraction in the relationship. Something that was a pet peeve to you. And you just told him, hey, it bothers me when you do things like that. It's not merely just an infraction against your pet peeves. It's a sin, first and foremost, against God himself. You understand that? It's a sin against God himself. Remember when David sins by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? And then he has, an, he has an affair with Bathsheba and then they have a kid and all that. He kills her husband. He prays when he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet. He prays, and we see this in the Psalms, to God against you and you alone have I sinned. That's, that's preposterous, we think, when we read it. But David grasps something there. That his sin is not merely against Uriah and Bathsheba. His sin is against God. That's the foundation of his sin. There are cultures where this idea of just confronting someone in sin is particularly hard. Cultures where honor and shame are lifted high in the community. It's difficult to go to someone and confront them in sin, especially if they're your superior, uh, they have a higher title than you do, they're older than you. It's a cultural no-no. Well, in the South... We have a significant problem here because it is, a, it is a challenge to actually go to someone in the South and tell them the problem that you have with them, to just confront them in their sin, or at the very least, even give them a chance to explain themselves. And that feeling is then magnified when we have thoughts of our own sin. You start thinking about the sin that they've committed against you or that you feel they've committed against you. And you won't go and tell them their sin because you think about all the times where you've committed sin. And maybe even sins very similar to this one. Maybe you were confronted about a sin like that just two weeks ago. And you think to yourself, well, I have a lot of sins. And if I go to them and call them out on their sins, well, then I'm a hypocrite. And so we turn it into this really pious thing. I'm not going to go confront them in their sin because then I would come off like a hypocrite and I don't want to be a hypocrite. So because of my piety, I don't want to actually confront them in their sins. But perhaps what you failed to consider is that your brother's sin extends beyond you. It's not merely an infraction against you. His sin is against God. And if he is truly a brother then he will know that is sin and do everything he can to make restitution for that sin, to make amends. This is what Jesus says. If he repents, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He's repented to you. He's repented to the Lord. He's not only amended the relationship with you, but he has restored his relationship with the Lord, which at this moment is at stake. 
This, as it turns out, is the purpose of the confrontation. The goal of the whole project is to bring this brother into repentance. And it turns out that as the church engages in this kind of church discipline, then repentance is taught throughout the church. It's reinforced throughout the church. This is actually what we are gathered here together for. We're coming to bring each other to repentance through the blood of Christ. You may recall that we talked about this a few weeks ago out of a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul makes mention um, of this as, as well when he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, uh, 4 to 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You notice what Paul says there? There's a man who's, who, who is... Uh, doing terrible things with his stepmom. And Paul says, you're to deliver this man to Satan. But what is the purpose of him being delivered over to Satan? Him being removed from membership, kicked out of the body, and, and, and left really to the world. What is the goal? That the repentance would actually be had in his life. That his flesh would be destroyed. So in other words, he gets outside of the body and he goes, there's not even a body of Christians that will affirm my faith. The body of Christians who knew me best have said, we don't think he's a Christian. That it's a wake-up call for this guy. That he turns and, and he repents. And then what does the church community do? The church community then offers official community forgiveness. We believe that repentance is authentic. You've changed your course of action. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so that, that, was, that was 1 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 2, we get this little, what might be an update on this situation. We're not sure, but, but it might be an update. Listen to what Paul says here to the same church in Corinthians in the second letter. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And some actually think that who Paul is talking about here is the same guy who they excommunicated from membership in the first book of the Corinthians. And in the second, he's repented and they're told now turn to him and offer him official community forgiveness lest he be overcome with excessive sorrow. He's repented and the church is now responsible for affirming his repentance uh, for, and forgiveness through, through his repentance. Now you need to understand. Let's just lay, the, lay claim to this in, in, in case anyone be confused. You have sinned. I have sinned. We have all sinned. This morning. In ways. That if we were not in Christ. And covered by his blood. Would be guilty of an eternity in hell. Alright. Let's just, let's just say that is true. No one is saying. That, 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 that's, that that's not true. We've all sinned in such ways. 
However, our individual sins are not a reason to stay quiet about someone else's sins against us. In fact, our sins are a way of keeping us humble so we understand, I've been there, I've done that, and when this man turns and repents, we are ready to offer forgiveness to him. Because you know what? I want forgiveness when I've sinned. Don't you? I want grace. I want mercy. I want forgiveness when I've sinned. Having sinned myself, I understand what it's like then to be forgiven and to be welcomed back by none other than God himself through the blood of Christ. I understand what that's like. So, it, so understanding that about each and every one of us keeps us all humble enough that we will accept someone's repentance and offer forgiveness to them and bring them back. We're not a group that's standing there with stones in our hands ready to kill someone. We're a group instead standing there saying, I know what that's like. I've been there, and except for God's grace, I will be there again. I know where this ends though, brother. Repent and come home. So the first goal is repentance, but second, I want you to see the church as a whole calls for repentance. The church as a whole, every member, the church as a whole calls for repentance from individuals. So in the event that the person doesn't come to repentance of one, on one call from one brother to repent, doesn't repent with two or three brothers which we'll talk about in just a second, the obligation falls on the shoulders of the entire church body as a whole. Every single member. Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. Now stop right there and we'll get to the rest in just a second. The church body as a whole is responsible for the sin of a single member. You get that? Going back to the example of 1 Corinthians that we just read from, notice that it is the whole church, in that case too, that is responsible for this man. And it's possible some don't even, in the church at Corinth, know this particular man. Maybe they're not aware of the sin, some of them. Some of them absolutely are, and Paul makes that clear, but some of them may not be even in the wares of this man's particular sin. Yet it falls on the congregation as a whole when they are assembled together to strike this man from membership, to restrict him from the Lord's table, from all of the rest because of his failure to repent of this particular situation. Church, this is congregational authority. This is congregational rule. This is essentially what separates a Baptist congregation, a Baptist church, from a Presbyterian church. That's essentially it. There's a couple of things, obviously, in your mind would come, come to mind infant baptism. That also separates us from a Presbyterian congregation. But one other fundamental distinction between a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church is this, that we believe in congregational authority. 
Sometimes you may hear it called congregational rule. Baptists hold that though elders lead the church, elders have a leadership role in the church, the congregation as a whole is responsible to guard the name of Jesus. Every single member in the congregation is responsible to guard the gospel. In a Presbyterian church, the elders rule. So they'll excommunicate someone from membership or they'll include someone in membership and just notify the congregation that this has happened. The elders are that, that guarding that gate right, of, of membership into the body. They accept and they omit members on their own. But in a Baptist church, we believe it falls on the, the shoulders of every single member of the church body to do exactly that. It's a big distinction between the two. And these three passages, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, is why we believe that the congregation carries such responsibility. Jesus and Paul both affirm, in Paul's case, when you are assembled, meaning all the church members are together, this is what your action you're to take, Jesus says, tell it to the church. It's the church as a whole that has the responsibility of being in agreement following the leadership of the elders and calling for repentance from every single one of its members. But there's one foundational, fundamental piece that we all have to agree on that you have to understand in order for any of this to make sense. And that is repentance is a gift God gives to His children. Repentance is a gift God gives only to his children. Hear that, understand it, really think about it for just a second. In his book, Doctrine of Repentance, the Puritan Thomas Watson says this, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit. Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That's what repentance is. Someone who is, by, by a gift of God, is inwardly repentant or inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. He's changed altogether. He's seen his sin. He's inwardly humbled. And outwardly, you can see the change. You can feel the change in him. So in other words... Repentance is not something that can be manufactured by human will or by an act of your mind alone. It's not something that you can sit there and go, yeah, you know what? I'm done with it. I decided I'm, I'm changing my mind on it. I'm, I'm done with it. It is a gift of God for someone to actually change do you understand that? Thomas Watson did not make this up. This is written in the scriptures. Romans 2, 4, Paul says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? And in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps, listen to this, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He's talking about people that sow division within the body. Timothy going to be a pastor. He's going to preach, and there's people that are sowing division within the body. And he's telling Timothy, just be long-suffering. Bear with them. Preach, teach the word. Correct them gently, humbly. Perhaps, maybe, God will grant them repentance. Otherwise, it's not happening. Maybe he will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And a group of Jews, as Peter is telling them what happened to a bunch of Gentiles when he preached the gospel to them, a group of Jews in Acts eleven eighteen say, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, God, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. How did salvation come to the Gentiles? God granted the repentance. And it was evident that that's what he had done. So I want you to think really hard with me for just a second about this. person falls into sin. Could be any sin, but we have two examples here in Scripture. One is a sin against you. Another is an egregious sin that has caused to defame the name of Christ and cast a bad light on the church in Corinth. You call this person to repentance. They don't repent. Several people get together. They call this person to repentance. These several people are there to affirm this really is sin. This is not just your own pet peeve that was at, at stake. This really was sin. They call them to repentance. They don't, this person doesn't repent. The whole church comes together and calls them to repentance. No, really, this is sin. You need to repent of it. They still don't repent. Now, you happen to know, because we've been taught and we've seen it in the Scriptures, God grants repentance to His children and His children alone. This person refuses to repent. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice. They come to Me. When I call them, they respond. He's talking about the proclamation of the Gospel right there, right? Church, we proclaim the Gospel. His sheep hear His voice and they come to repentance, right? Jesus says, well, my sheep hear my voice. They, they repent. But this person is refusing to repent. What does that tell us? What does it tell you? Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words... The baptism that you proclaimed on him, you, he came forward to be baptized and came to faith and you said, best we know and what we can tell by the fruit in his life, that person is a believer. I think that person is a believer. Now though, in him not being able to repent, not being able to see his sin clearly, not being able to own it and come back and, and confess his sin... He is demonstrating the fruit of someone that's not God's own sheep. Someone who is Christ would hear his call to repentance and come running and repent. This person is not doing that. And then Jesus says, do not hesitate to remove this person from membership in the body. They are most likely then not a sheep, but a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's what he's saying. So the church then is to declare publicly in such a case that this 
is not one of God's sheep, best we can tell. Do you understand? All of this hinges on repentance. It hinges on someone's ability to confess sin before the Lord. That's fundamental to a church body. That's what we are. The core of us are people that confess our own sins. It can be faked. Someone can fake it, of course. But when it is found that repentance doesn't exist in the life of an individual, the church is to speak. And that's mainly because of our second point here, what Jesus is about to say. The church is the mouthpiece of heaven speaking in Jesus' name. The church is a mouthpiece, is the mouthpiece of heaven speaking in Jesus' name. Look at Matthew 18, 18 to 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This binding and loosing here is in response to unrepentant sin. So the disciples as a whole who are going to establish this church on the foundation of Christ will be responsible. They'll be responsible for making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded them. We know that from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So in the process, when someone demonstrates an unwillingness to repent of sin, having been warned about it time after time, the disciples are responsible to tell it to the church, and the church is responsible for removing them from membership in the assembly. The translation most translations give us is, whatever you bind will be bound. You see that there? Some of you may also have a little note above that that tells you what this also could be. Um, but when it says whatever you bind will be bound, it sounds like future tense. It sounds like that the, everybody in heaven is just waiting on Peter and the disciples in the church to decide what's going to happen with this person. And then when something happens, they run and tell God, well, the church decided this person is bound. And then heaven is obligated then to go, well, let's bind them then. That's, ve- that's a very Roman Catholic idea of church discipline. All right, that's, that's not, I don't think, what is being said here. Jesus' actual words, and I think a better translation of it, as you'll find noted in most of your Bibles, whatever you bind will have been bound, is I think the way it should be expressed. In other words, Jesus is saying that his presence is going to forever be amongst his church, which he's going to go on to tell them. It's going to be forever with his church. And they then will be collectively responsible for reflecting the will of heaven, particularly when it comes to binding and loosing. In other words, God is the judge, God is the jury, God is the executioner, and for reasons known only to Him, He has not granted to this individual the gift of repentance. And that is becoming obvious to us as we continue to prod them to repent. It's obvious God has not given them the gift of repentance. And God has already decided that for reasons known only to Him. So then the church, what is their responsibility? It's delivering the heavenly verdict. God has decided we are now just delivering the verdict, speaking in Jesus' name. 
and to collectively, as a church, deliver, have the responsibility and the ability to do just that. Because the core to who we are as a church body is people who guard the gospel, who put a fence around the gospel. This is what the gospel is. We're guarding the gospel. And to guard the gospel means nothing if it doesn't mean helping people understand how to deal with sin and where to take it. If we can't explain that, if we can't protect that, if the world is going to look at our church and say, well, there's rampant sin going on in there. Is that what the gospel means? See, it means nothing. Guarding the gospel means nothing if we can't do that. So Jesus tells them, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And a lot of people will quote this verse when they're talking about gathering with their, their Christian friend at a coffee shop and praying together. Where two or three are gathered, he's there, he gives us whatever we want. But you notice that that's not what's going on in this context. There's someone on trial here in the context. And the two or three are witnesses that go all the way back to the Old Testament, establishing a conviction. Like I said, this is so that we can understand. This is not just me being ticked off about some, something and going to somebody because of, they've offended a personal pet peeve of mine. The two or three are there to confirm, yes, indeed, this is a for sure sin. Here it is in the Scriptures. They're here to establish the guilt of an individual, to hear the evidence and weigh it back and forth. And so Jesus is telling them then, if it's been established as such, and the person is still unrepentant, you have my permission. You have my permission to speak on my behalf right there to an individual. You have the authority to, to declare what God is making obvious to you right now. I want you to think about, for just a second, the sermon that I, I preached last week, if you heard it. Uh, if you didn't, then go back and listen to it, maybe. Remember what, what I said there was, we need to take great care of the people in our church. We don't, we don't need to despise even one of these little ones. We're not to let them wander off into sin. We're not to treat them poorly because God doesn't. He cares greatly for them, and he has put you to care over them as well. However, and there is a big however, there is a point where you cut them loose. But do you see the tension here? I want you to feel the weight of responsibility that is on a church as it comes to guarding the gospel. Do you feel the weight of responsibility? You cut them loose too soon, you're despising one of these little ones. You let them go too long, and you're confusing people as to what the gospel is. There is a, a balance that a church has to walk. You're keeping these two things in tension constantly, and there's a ditch on either side of the road that you're walking down. We don't want to be in the habit of cutting people loose all the time because that's despising God's little ones. But then the ditch on the other side is we don't want to fall asleep as a church body and not purge the evil person from among us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Lest we confuse the world and we confuse each other with what it actually means to be a Christian. Here's the reality. 
if we have the authority as a church body to be heaven's mouthpiece, then we speak only on the authority of Christ. That's where we speak. And He's given us the authority and the command to do just that. Well, then let me ask you, what does it say about Jesus when we refuse to call out sin in the lives of the person who's either sinned against us or perhaps sinned against the whole church, sinned against Christ egregiously? What does it say about Jesus? The world knows you are a mouthpiece for Christ. The world knows this intuitively. They understand that you're speaking for heaven. And so when you let sin go on in the body and run rampant all over the body, what happens then to your witness in the community? People lose what the gospel actually is. What is it that you're actually calling people to? What is it that you're supposed to be? See, we're heaven's mouthpiece whether we actually excommunicate someone or not. We're speaking one way or the other. So if we avoid doing it, we avoid calling it out, we avoid confronting that person no matter how awkward, we tell everyone, Jesus is okay with this. It's fine. Go ahead. When it comes to the church, There are some big misconceptions about what we're doing here. Huge. Especially in our society. And they usually fall in a couple of camps. The first views the church as a social club. You may not think that you think about it this way, but but follow me here. Thinking about the church as a social club, you join, you pay your dues, you go to activities, with your dues come certain amenities that you get on the, back, on the back side, right? You get the use of the building, let's say, for weddings and funerals and showers and just various events that you want to use. You, you, you have activities that you get to be a part of. Well, they have activities that are organized for us that we can go to and we can socialize. And this is where I make friends. Social club mentality. Another group in the church views the church as a business. Well, it's a business after all. You may hear people even say that. The church is a business. In which case, what is meant is you have to not do anything that would jeopardize the receipts. That is the money coming in. If attendance goes down, well, there's something wrong. We're doing something really terrible here. Attendance is going down. If money goes down, that's a sign of failure, abort, whatever we're doing. Let's change course. Because if people are leaving, that's a sign of failure. If we don't have activities and we don't do this sort of thing, that also is a sign of failure. Because we have a social club mentality or we have a business mentality. If that was the case, Jesus would fail in establishing the church on both accounts. Look at John 6. He's got thousands of people there. He feeds the 5,000. And by the end of the chapter, everybody's leaving. He even turns to the disciples. He goes, you going to go too? I know one of you is. It might be hard for you to hear this. And maybe you've checked out of the sermon. You just say, look, I'm not listening to this guy anymore. Okay, fine. Wake up and listen to me on this. All right? If you hear nothing else, listen to me on this. 
If either of those have been your thoughts about the church, Jesus and I are correcting you on those thoughts. Those are wrong thoughts. That's not what we're here to do. That's not what a church is at all. If those were actual signs of failure for the church, Jesus would not tell you to kick anyone out. Do you realize that? If it was about establishing friends, if it was about establishing events, the more the merrier. Welcome them all in. If it was about money and about putting rear ends in the pews, then he wouldn't tell you to kick anyone out. And if the friendships that you form in the church are not friendships where you can confess your sin to this person and they're going to help you in your battle with sin and help you overcome those sins, then those aren't the kinds of friendships that are going to endure to eternity. You realize that? They're not going to last. The church is not a business. The church is not a social club. 2,000 years ago, Christ rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he's now ruling the entire world and executing God's rule and reign. And he's bringing people into submission to his name on a daily basis through his church. If you're looking for an analogy for what the church is, it's more like an, uh, 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 an embassy than it is anything else. It's an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. We don't grant citizenship to the kingdom of heaven. We don't remove citizenship from the kingdom of heaven. That's solely Christ who rules and reigns at the right hand of God. But we do authenticate. We do check documents. And if they seem to be authentic, we allow entry. We do that. And if at any point they prove to be false, we are responsible to remove them. The church is the mouthpiece of heaven and it's speaking in Jesus' name and we have to be careful that we neither speak out of turn nor do we ever refuse to speak when Jesus has spoken. Now, briefly, let's talk about what this means for just a second. Because I know you probably think well, church discipline this is just a procedural thing. I don't really care. This is really hard to understand. Why are we talking about this? This is for your good. Understand, this is for your good. A church that proclaims and defends the gospel in this way is a blessing to you. Here's one reason why. How many of you have struggled mightily with sin? I'm not asking for a show of hands. Just think to yourself. How many of you have struggled mightily with sin? And I mean struggled to the point where you think to yourself, am I really a Christian? I don't know if I really am a Christian or not. When you make your sin known to your brothers and sisters, and I encourage you to do that, bring that group in close to you, and let them know what you struggle with. But when you do that, when you bring them in close, you let them know what you're really struggling with. And when they call you out on sin, and when they encourage you, and when they preach to you, when you bring them in to the, the most intimate areas of your life, their proclamation about your salvation actually means something. 
You understand that? It actually means something. When, when a church knows all your dirt, and then on the other side says, no, I think you are a Christian. You know why? Because I see embers of faith in you. I see little glimpses of repentance in you. We see that in your life. Do you see what kind of affirmation that gives you about your own salvation? Do you understand that? That's an encouragement to you. But it's only when a church cares enough for God's sheep that it would guard the gospel in this way. So the verdict that we should strive to pronounce should reflect heaven's own verdict. So that a a sheep in this congregation, a member of this congregation, who's been called out on sin and brought to repentance, can stand before the Lord and say, I know that I'm one of His. I've had Christians around me my whole life call me out on sin and affirm my faith. And so I stand on judgment day under the blood of Christ, confident of what's going to happen, not because of what I've done, but because what Christ has done in me. And the church has affirmed that. And it's only then that a church can provide this sense of security for the sheep that are inside the pen, that wolves are not allowed to move about freely in this congregation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you create this kind of community here. We see embers of it. We see it growing. We see it fostering. We see it coming about in the lives of so many, but we pray for more. Father, I pray that you would bring to repentance those in our congregation who are right now struggling mightily in the throes of sin. That you would grant them repentance leading to life without it. They're dangling over the pit of hell. I pray that you would put the prayers in their mouth to pray them. That you would open their eyes to salvation. Pray that you would bring them in. I pray that for the children in this congregation who sit through sermon after sermon much longer than they feel like they can pay attention. I feel like you would do a miraculous work in sowing the Spirit into their heart that you would open their eyes and give them that grace. I know so many parents in this congregation are praying that for their own kids. Only you can grant it. I pray you would. So many in this congregation have thought, maybe, for a long time that they're Christians. And maybe, just maybe, they're coming along now to think, maybe I'm not. Would you finish the work in giving them the gift of repentance leading to life? Pray this in Jesus' name.